want to welcome all of us at Sinistry Church, those of us here at Center Campus, as well as those joining us from our campus in Northwest Calgary, Bridgeland, Airdrie, and South Calgary. I also want to welcome our online viewers as well. Uh, we are taking a break from our study of the Gospel of Matthew, and just want to let you know that uh, next weekend, Pastor Henry will be starting a very important sermon series in the life of our church that will reinforce our church's vision and direction. Uh, today I want to speak to you from the book of Ephesians written by the Apostle Paul. Paul was a powerful preacher. And if I had a chance, I would love to hear Paul preach. It will be an incredible experience hearing his passion for the Lord and his passion for the gospel. As much as we would all like to hear Paul preach, we should hear Paul pray. When you read the letters of Paul, every now and then you will see Paul's prayers for the New Testament churches. There is such spiritual depth in those prayers that reflect the heart of Paul, his own intimacy with the Lord. I find Paul's prayers to be radically different from what people commonly pray for today. Studying and reflecting on these prayers of Paul will change your prayer life. I would encourage you to, in fact, join me in this exercise. In the next season of your quiet time with the Lord, use Paul's prayers in his letters to guide your time of prayer. I bet it'll have a remarkable impact on the quality of your prayer life. Now, based on the content of God, uh, Paul's prayers, I wondered, what would Paul pray for if he were here to be at Sinistry Church? After all, we are living in very challenging times. The pandemic is dragging on and on and on, and we feel like it's hard to be optimistic these days. Every time you watch the news, your hope is deflated. We have gathering restrictions, which means many of you are still watching us online. Now, I miss those days when our church was packed with people here and the atrium was buzzing with activities and all the good things that we did. And add to that, we are in the middle of a building campaign. And this is a huge endeavor in these tough economic times. But keeping the future of our church in mind, it is very much necessary. And we live in a big city that's very secular in its outlook, and we have a huge mission field to harvest. Yet, if Paul were to be here in our midst and pray for us, I doubt if the thrust of Paul's prayers would address any of these concerns first and foremost. Not because Paul didn't care about these things or they are trivial, Paul would say, I know these things are hugely important, and that is why I'm praying for you to know God more. Because if you know God more, and if you know who you are as God's people, all of those other concerns become small in light of that. Paul wrote his letters to churches that were facing intense persecution, false teachings, divisions, ominous threats, and yet his primary concern for those churches 
that, where that they would come to know God, experience Him at a deeper level, know His love, His character, and everything that they do would flow out of that authentic relationship. Yes, we have many challenges in our 21st century, but as we grow deeper in our knowledge of God, all of those problems, every one of them are put into perspective. So let me read to us Paul's prayer from the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. If you're physically able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. And that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills everything in every way. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, we echo the Apostle Paul's prayer today. And we want to confess, Lord, it is our heart's desire to know you more. Because nothing compares to that. It is our greatest need. So I pray that you will use even this time to give us a deeper knowledge of you. We pray, God, for a revelation from above, that which I cannot orchestrate in my human strength. So I express my dependence on you, and I pray that you will do what you alone can do. Open the eyes of our heart that we will see Jesus high and exalted in our midst. And let that in turn calm all our fears, all our anxieties. So use this time to minister to every person gathered here in this place. And we pray this in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. You all may be seated. New experiences can be great and exhilarating. Talk to starry-eyed newlyweds. Now, when I do weddings, I pay attention to the vows that are being exchanged. And it is popular these days for couples to come up with their own fancy personal vows. And as they're reading it to each other, they're emotional and misty-eyed. And they're saying lots of really nice things like, I will never stop loving you. I can't think of life without you. 
You are the best thing that has happened to me. You are my whole world. And together we are going to live in this perpetual bliss. Yeah, and I'm standing there thinking, you have no idea what you're getting yourself into. No clue of how those vows are going to be soon tested. If ever there are two people out of touch with reality, they're newlyweds. Well, after hearing me say this, I don't expect anyone would ask me to officiate their wedding. That's okay. <laughs> you know, I've also done a few renewal of vows for couples celebrating their 25th or even 50th anniversary. And when they exchange vows, you know what they're talking about, right? We all know this. Initial shine can wear off. In the same way, new Christians show excitement as they are discovering new spiritual truths. They're so into it, and it is actually refreshing to see such deep passion. But after following Jesus for many years, the Bible becomes familiar. Prayer times become monotonous. And if you've been a Christian for a long time, there is a danger that you're particularly vulnerable to. And before you know this, it can sneak in on you and you will not even notice. You stop growing spiritually. Call it spiritual stagnation. A lack of development or progress in your spiritual journey. The growth plateaus or stalls and you merely go through the motions. The longer you're a Christian, you really have to watch for the spiritual stagnation. And that is why Paul's prayer here in our passage calls for the enlightenment of the heart, for the opening of spiritual eyes to greater truths. And notice this, Paul is not praying this for non-Christians. He is praying this for those whose faith in Jesus and their love for God's people was so well known. The Christians in Ephesus were a spiritually mature bunch. And still Paul is praying, God, they're doing great spiritually, but don't let them rest on their laurels, but take them even deeper and they walk with you. So here in verse 17, Paul writes, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. That is the thrust of Paul's prayers in the New Testament, to know God better. It doesn't matter how many years you've been following Jesus, your knowledge and your love for God ought to keep growing even as the years go by until the day you meet Jesus face to face when you die. This hunger for God is something that needs to be insatiable. And Paul knows that this is not something we can just make, make it happen in our own strength. It is a supernatural work of God, and it requires divine revelation. And that is why I said if Paul were to be here and pray for us, he would say, Lord, 
help the people of Center Street Church to receive a revelation of who you are, that they will know you deeply, intimately, and profoundly. As you look at Paul's prayer here, you will notice there are at least three realities that he is specifically highlighting. Look at verses 18 and the first part of verse 19. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. So first of all, Paul highlights that we come to know and understand the hope that we have as believers. That God has a destiny and a future in mind for us that eye has not seen, ear has not heard, or the human mind even conceived. So that is what is awaiting us as God's people. So every time we are confounded by a problem in the present, we are to look to the future hope that we have. And secondly, Paul prays here that we will know the riches of our glorious inheritance. Once again, this is pointing to the future. This is all about heaven, what awaits us, the rewards that are in store for us. We ought to think of this quite often. In fact, we are called to live our lives in the present in light of this glorious future. There's a popular saying that goes like this, we can be so heavenly-minded that we are of no earthly use. A revival preacher, Leonard Ravenhill, said the exact opposite, and I think he's right, or he wrote, the brutal, soul-shaking truth is that we are so earthly-minded and we are of no heavenly use. So that is Paul's prayer for the churches, for Christians, for believers, that we become heavenly-minded. We think of the future that awaits us often. Now, after praying for things that are to do with the future, Paul prays for something that has to do with the present, and that's what I want to focus on today. Paul prays that we all collectively will understand and believe in the all-surpassing power that is available for us. This power dimension is not about the future, but this is about the present. And Paul's heart's longing is the church will discover this spiritual truth, that we have spiritual power in the now, and that is sufficient to overcome all of our problems and challenges. So the word power and its various synonyms are used a number of times in this little prayer. The word for power in Greek is dunamis, from which we get our word dynamite. Another word Paul uses here is energia, from which we get our word energy. Paul calls this great or mighty strength. The word for great is kratos, from which we get our word autocrat, someone who has the ability to conquer and rule. The word might signifies exerting physical labor. You can see what Paul is doing here. He is graphically painting the picture of the power resources that we have as God's people. Paul goes on to 
describe this power in this way. The last part of verse 19 and 20, he says, that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. See, Paul is not praying for power. He's saying, God, open our eyes that we will see the power that has already been given to us in Christ. So we don't need more power. We need to appropriate the power that has already been made available for us. For the power that is available for believers, Paul says, is the same power God exerted to raise Jesus from the dead. Now let that sink in for a moment. If the cross is the highest demonstration of God's love, and the resurrection is the highest demonstration of God's power. It's nothing like the resurrection. A Jesus who was humiliated, stripped naked, beaten, and tortured, nailed to the cross, died a brutal death. But the resurrection that happened in three days' time is the evidence of God's power to reverse anything. Because he is the God of divine reversal. So the Jesus who was dead, was buried in his tomb, was brought back to life. And this is nothing but the spectacular declaration of God's power. Now, if you want to know more about the resurrection, I want to direct you to the Why Believe series by Pastor Henry. And one of the questions he addresses there is the reliability of the resurrection. He does a brilliant job with it. So check it out on our website if you're interested. Now, after speaking about the resurrection, Paul is directing our attention to something else that is very significant in our text. Jesus has been raised from the dead and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. As evangelical Christians, there are four areas that dominate our understanding of Jesus. The incarnation, Jesus coming into this world as a little baby, we celebrate during Christmas time. Jesus' death on the cross that happened on Good Friday, and his glorious resurrection that we just celebrated recently during Easter. And then the fact that he's coming back, his second coming, the Jesus who rose from the dead is coming back once again. But there's something that we miss. We don't give adequate attention to, but the scripture seems to highlight this quite often, and it's Jesus' ascension. That's a dimension that we hardly talk about, but Jesus died, he rose from the dead, and then he ascended to heaven. Now, Paul is drawing our attention to this specific event here in our text. For where is Jesus now? Seated at the right hand of the Father. Forty days after the resurrection, the gospel accounts tell us very clearly that Jesus, in public view of the disciples, ascended to heaven. He didn't just disappear or vanish one day all of a sudden, but he was taken up in the clouds while the disciples were watching. It was a public event. 
hear me, the gospel writers portray Jesus' ascension as the culmination of his ministry here on earth. That is the high point according to the gospels. It is a sign that all of his work is now done. His, the reason why he came here on earth is accomplished. So having finished his work on the cross, vindicated by God through his resurrection, Jesus now ascended to the throne, to the place where he had always been all through eternity. He's back with the Father. And the ascension is presented as the coronation of Jesus. Call it his installation ceremony. And for the very first time, we have a God-man at the throne room of God, someone who is 100% God and 100% human representing us in God's presence. So Jesus has been enthroned as the undisputed Lord of heaven and earth. All the empires of the world will collapse. All the rulers will have to vacate their throne, but not so with King Jesus, for his reign and his dominion will carry on forever. Now look at what Paul says here with regard to that in verses 21 and 22. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. So this is the source of our power. The ascended Christ, who is the undisputed king, has sovereign power, dominion, and authority over everything. Now, he may be seated at the right hand, but that doesn't mean that he's idle. Jesus is busy. He is actively at work redeeming and restoring all things back to God's original purposes. And this image of Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father is a powerful one. It communicates that Jesus calls the shots. For to be seated at the right hand is the place of highest honor. So the very power of Almighty God belongs to Jesus. Everything as a result is now placed under his feet. And what Paul is referencing here echoes the most popular psalm of the New Testament writers, the most quoted psalm in the New Testament which is Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. God the Father is speaking these words to God the Son. Now God the Son had humbled himself through the incarnation, but now God exalts him to the highest place through his ascension as Jesus is now seated on the throne. So what that means is the Jesus that we worship does not lack anything. He has been given the highest honor. 
He is infinitely superior. He is the name above all names. No one can question his absolute lordship. He is far superior to any competitor. No one even comes close. Everything, everything is subject to him. And what that means is no work of the enemy, no plan of any human being can be a threat to this Jesus. They cannot hinder what Jesus wants to accomplish. They are merely his footstool. And Paul says here in our text, this Jesus who has ascended, who has all power and authority, is the head of the church. So he writes in verse 22, And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. The lordship of Jesus Christ is for the benefit of the church. We are privileged to have Jesus guide us and direct us in our decisions. We are the beneficiaries of that. For our head, our chief, our leader has that much authority. And if we belong to him, what do we have to fear? What are we to be afraid of? The Bible tells us that one day this ascended Jesus, who's seated at the right hand of the Father, will stand up. It is the moment all of creation has been eagerly anticipating. And that, I tell you, will be a glorious moment, astounding. The realization of our hope, the culmination of all of what we've been looking forward to. The ascended Christ will rise from his throne and will once again descend. And Jesus, the king, will come for the second time, and the whole world will see this spectacular event. And on that day, the Bible tells us, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every single opposition will be wiped out. And we, as God's people, will live in the presence of Jesus forever. So that is the destiny that awaits us all. Now, what I have done so far is taken Paul's prayer and give you the image of Jesus that Paul is painting in this prayer. The authority and the power that is vested in the Jesus that we serve. moves us to the question, how does that impact us today? What does it mean for us? So we come now to the application of this truth. As we look at this, what we do understand is the king is in his rightful place. He is executing his plan. And we, the people of the kingdom, are secure. And Paul's prayer is, that our eyes will be opened to this reality. That it will not just be an intellectual, theoretical head knowledge, but this will translate so deep into our hearts. 
It will change the way we look at everything. It will become a revelation. It will come alive in such a way that this truth will be the glasses that we will use to view everything that's happening in our world today. So it brings the question, what does this truth mean in the midst of this pandemic that's raging for quite a long time? So when we view this pandemic through this lens of Jesus' ascension and lordship, this is what it means. We can have an unshakable confidence that this world is not spinning out of control that we are not at the mercy of a virus that is creating havoc? No. We can be confident that King Jesus reigns supreme, that all things are subject to him, that this virus is not going to thwart God's purposes for his people. And like always, as God has done countless times throughout history, even this evil will not overpower God's agenda but God will turn it around in such a way that it will advance his cause. And what does this mean for a Christian battling with sin? How does this incredible power at our disposal influence that aspect? And when a Christian struggles in an area of sin, we quickly come to the conclusion we are powerless, that the sinful tendency has a grip or a hold over us, the temptation is way too strong, there's not much we can do other than just cave in. The pornography statistics found in a website called Covenant Eyes is mind-blowing. They claim 64% of Christian men and 15% of Christian women watch porn at least once a month. Now, I don't know how they came up with this number, but what I do know is we have a huge problem on our hands. And the pandemic and spending too much time online has only aggravated this issue. If you're addicted to internet pornography, and every time you feel like, I don't have the power to resist, that the temptation is too strong, uh, there's not much I can do other than just cave in, that is a time you need to just stop and remind yourself that the power that raised Jesus from the dead and the power that he holds as the ascended Lord and King is at your disposal. The pull of any raging sin is no match to the power God has freely made available for you. Sin, any sin that you may be wrestling with, doesn't have the better of you. You are not powerless but a far greater power is at work in you, empowering you to live a life of victory and holiness. Now, what about the mission of the church? 
As I mentioned at the beginning of the message, we are in a building campaign. Our Northwest building uh, is nearing completion, almost ready. Extensive work is happening here at our central campus. And we are facing challenges from every side. The economy, the impact of COVID, the question mark over when we can have all of our people together in our various worship services. And at times, humanly speaking, all of this can be quite daunting. We don't have answers to so many questions. And this is the very time we need to remind ourselves we don't lack any resources. And all of heaven stands behind us. That the one that we worship has figured this all out. And we are representing a mission that cannot fail. We belong to a cause that will not face defeat. It is only a matter of time before all of these oppositions will be brought under the lordship of Jesus Christ. See, this is what inspires us to persevere and to carry on and keep engaging in the battle and not quit at any cost. So often in the Christian life, God may not change our circumstances, but he changes the way we view our circumstances. And that change has to happen in our heart through a revelation. So we pray along with the Apostle Paul, Lord, open our eyes that we will not be fixated on the uncertainties and the challenges that are surrounding us, but open our eyes that we will see how awesome Jesus is, how exalted he is, how superior he is, that he is matchless, that he has no rivals, he has no equals. He reigns supreme as our king. And if this vision were to fill your heart, and turn into a revelation, then it will affect how you view everything else. It will calm all your fears. It will take away all your anxieties. The things that are not in your control, you won't be fretting over it, but you can live a confident life trusting that our King holds everything in the palm of His hands. So let me ask you, if the Jesus we serve is so powerful, can we not trust him with these uncertainties in our world? Can we not believe that he will take care of the uncertainties of our personal lives? I'm going to ask all of us to stand right now. The worship team will come and lead us in a couple of songs. I want us to just quieten our hearts for a moment because we're going to do what I've been talking about all along. Exalt the name of Jesus. And we're going to pray even before we sing silently and say, Lord, open the eyes of my heart. Give me this deeper revelation that we will be fixing our eyes on Jesus, the exalted one, the one who has ascended, 
the one who is coming back as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So let's worship from the depth of our heart. And as we do that, I tell you, as we magnify his name, he'll free us of all of our fears and all of our anxieties. So let's lift up the name of Jesus on high as I hand it over to our worship team.